My name is Stephanie. I'm the lead pastor here at Mill City. We're so glad that you joined us. I hope you're having a good Memorial Day weekend. I want to pause for sure and just honor all of those who has, have lost their life fighting for our country. And absolutely to say thank you to those of you who have served or continue to serve our country. Thank you for your service. We uh, asked this question over community time and it's maybe no surprise that I was involved with that. Tony and I are both t-shirt people. And if you know me, you know that I, I can really get into the t-shirts. In fact, I call them Steph shirts. And I sometimes have our friend Josh Eschbach at Revolution Screenworks make t-shirts for me specifically. Some of you know that, but some of you are, are figuring this out right now. Like, wait a second, what? So I, I put some t-shirts out there this year because, you know, I missed people and I thought, hey, this might be kind of fun. And so I would just put out these random t-shirts and see how many people wanted to get a copy of these shirts, okay? So for instance, one of my favorites was this one. It says, Jesus loves you and I'm still trying. That was one of my favorites. Uh, some of you know that I really like snow, even though some people don't love it. So this is a sweatshirt, obviously, but it says, pray for snow, hashtag snow positive, because I just feel like let's be positive about snow. I made a shirt with St. Patrick's face on it for St. Patrick's Day. Um, I mean, the shirts got pretty crazy, but there was one shirt that was the most popular shirt by far of all the Steph shirts that happened over this last year, and that was the prayers and swears t-shirt. All right, here it is. Prayers and swears, hashtag 2020. Um, and then because 2020 continued into 2021, it did end up having a reprise, which was prayers and swears, um, hashtag 2021. And the reason this, this shirt was so popular, I think, is because at some point in the, the craziness and the intensity and in all seriousness, the pain and the suffering of this last year, thoughts and prayers didn't feel like enough for some people. And so prayers and swears emerged. Um, obviously, this year hasn't been easy for any of us. And I think it's been harder for some people than others. Um, but, I, you know, the t-shirt was just trying to be funny. But I think that sometimes our prayers are so full of pain and suffering that they come out a little bit more like swears. And hopefully you've been around Mill City long enough to know that Lament is something we talk about a lot because it's something that God invites us to bring our prayers to God and to be honest with God, even if they're coming out a little intense because we're going through a lot, that we can be honest with God. And today's scripture is going to show us that reality yet again, but in a different way than talking about the lament psalms, which we often have, or even quoting the book of Lamentations, which is a book that's focused on this idea of lamenting and bringing our honest realities to God. Today, we're going to look at the story of Job through the book of Job. This is a story of a man who went through incredible suffering. Many people are probably familiar in some way with his story. Job is 42 chapters long. Now that is a long book on suffering because suffering is something that's often very long. And so it's interesting how long this book is. Most of it is a dialogue between Job and his three friends. And it's in the form of Hebrew poetry. So it's really unique in that way. Instead of just putting uh, a dialogue between friends, it's, they're expressing themselves through Hebrew poetry. And at one point in my theological education, and I'm not even sure totally why I did this, I took an entire class that was an entire semester on the book of Job. So I know there is a lot we could talk about in 42 chapters of this book of Job. But today I want to bring to the surface just two things that I think we can learn from Job. First, we can learn how God invites us to process the suffering that we will inevitably go through in our life. I think this book shows us how in a specific way. And then secondly, I think that how we can come alongside other people in their suffering and what they're going through is also highlighted here in this story because, of course, it's about Job and his friends. 
it's kind of hard to know how to come alongside other people when they're going through things. I don't know if you've noticed that, but at least I would say that. And without wisdom, which we've been talking about in this conversation of wisdom in action, without wisdom, we can end up making the suffering worse if we're not careful, right? And so asking God for wisdom and how we can come alongside people is so important. And we'll talk about that through the story as well today. So I want you just to think back over this last year and just think about how were you supported? What did that look like as people came alongside you? What, what about for you and you came alongside other people and were supporting other people? What was helpful? What, what maybe wasn't helpful? Just think about those things as we talk through this conversation today. So let's take a look at the book of Job. Perhaps unsurprisingly, I want us to watch a Bible Project video about the story of Job because you're welcome for me not reading all 42 chapters. We're going to watch this short video to give you just the big picture of what this story is all about. So Job begins with a strange story that takes place up in the heavens, which are described something like a heavenly command center. So God is there with these angelic creatures called the sons of God, and they're all there reporting for duty. And God points out this guy Job, his servant, showing how righteous and good he is. And then one of these angelic creatures approaches. He's referred to in Hebrew as the Satan. The Satan? Who is this? Well, this word is actually a title, which literally means the one who is opposed. So out of this whole crew, he is the one questioning how God is running the world. And he proposes that Job might not actually love God, that he's only a good person because God rewards him. If God were to take away all of the good things he gave to Job, then we would see his true colors. So he thinks Job is just working the system? That's exactly right. Maybe he's obeying just to get what he wants. So God agrees to this experiment and allows the Satan to inflict suffering on Job. And Job loses everyone and everything that he cares about. It is devastating. And remember, he deserves none of this. God himself said so. The remarkable thing is that in the midst of all this suffering, Job still praises God. At least for chapters 1 and 2. But then in chapter 3, we find out how he's really feeling inside. He unleashes this poem that reveals his devastation. It's a long, elaborate curse on the day that he was born. After this, some of Job's friends come to visit him to offer their help. And all of them are like, Job, you must have done something horribly wrong to deserve this. After all, we know God is just, and we know the world is ordered by God's justice and fairness, so you must be getting what you deserve. And for the next 34 chapters, the friends and Job go back and forth in very dense Hebrew poetry. His friends keep speculating about why God might have sent such suffering, and they even start making up lists of hypothetical sins that Job must have committed. But after each accusation, Job defends his innocence. And Job is innocent. He is. He's also on an emotional roller coaster. At some moments, he's very confident that God is still wise and just. Yeah, in other moments, he's doubting God's goodness. He even comes to accuse God of being reckless, unfair, and corrupt. So by the end of the dialogues, Job demands that God come and explain himself in person. And God does so. He comes in the form of a great storm cloud. Now, God doesn't give Job a direct answer. He doesn't tell Job about the conversation with the Satan. Yeah, he does something very different. He takes Job on a virtual tour of the universe. He shows Job how grand the world is. And he asks him if he's even capable of running it or understanding it just for a day. 
He shows Job how much detail there is in the world, things that we might see every day but really don't understand at all. But God does. He knows it all intimately. He pays attention to the beauty and operations of the universe in ways that we haven't even imagined and in places that we will never see. Then to conclude, God shows Job two wondrous beasts and brags about how great they are. Yeah, they are dangerous. I mean, they would kill you without even thinking about it. And God says they're not evil. They're actually a part of his good world. And then that's it. That's God's whole defense. It's kind of weird. I mean, what was this all about? It seems to be this. From Job's point of view, it looks like God is not just. But God's perspective is infinitely bigger. He's dynamically interacting with a whole universe of complexity when he makes decisions. And this is what God calls his wisdom. So Job asking God to defend himself is actually kind of absurd. He couldn't comprehend this kind of complexity even if he wanted to. So where does this leave us? Well, it leaves Job in a place of humility. He never learned why he suffered, and yet he's able to live in peace and in the fear of the Lord. But that's not where the book ends, because after this, God restores to Job double everything he had lost. And this, again, is surprising. I mean, is this a reward? Is God saying, congratulations, Job, you passed this elaborate test? No. I mean, the whole book just made the point that Job losing everything was not a punishment. And so now getting it back isn't a reward. So why does he get it back? Well, apparently, God, in his wisdom, decided to give Job a gift. We don't know why. But what we do know is that Job is now the kind of person who, no matter what comes, good or bad, he can trust God's wisdom. Over the years, as people have studied the book of Job, I think a lot of people have wanted this story to explain the problem of evil. In theology, we call this a theodicy, a theodicy. A theodicy is an answer to the question, how can God be good yet allow evil and suffering in the world? And this is such an important question. So you can see why people, they want an answer to that. And, and it's a good question and it's worth studying. And there's been volumes and volumes written on different theodicies or explanations for how can a God be good but also allow suffering and pain in the world. And the thing is, is the book of Job doesn't really do that. It doesn't give an explanation of how or why. Instead, it reveals how to exist, how to exist in the midst of suffering that's caused by evil. And it reveals how to support other people or how not to support other people, as we saw in the story. And most of this book is the friends and Job trying to understand all this is, that has happened to him, so much that he's lost, so much that he's gone through. They're asking, why did this happen? And they're giving their ideas of how and why this must have happened. And in the end, God doesn't respond until the very end. Most of the book is this dialogue between friends. Let me read to you from Job chapter 2. Job has just lost everything. And I want to pick up the story in verse 11. When Job's three friends, Eliaphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shutite, and Zophar, the Namathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and they met together by agreement to go and to sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. 
Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, and no one said a word to him because they saw how great of suffering in how great of suffering he was in. I just feel like we need to pause and just think about this picture. This is a powerful image. It says that they saw him and they barely recognized him because he had been through so much. And I know many of us have come to the side, the bedside of a sick friend, and we felt that way. It hardly even looked like them. And then these friends, they, they cry with him. They cry out, they tear their clothes, they put dust on their head, and that would be a sign of mourning, very common in ancient Israel. It's kind of identifying with, with the people that have died. They're returning to the dust, and so putting dust on your head would be this way of saying, I am in mourning with you, Job. And they sat there with him for seven days and seven nights, and it says no one said a word because they saw how great his suffering was. They were just present with him. I have heard this called the ministry of of presence. The ministry of presence. Not the ministry of words, not even that much actions, but to sit and to be present. And we're going to come back to this later. So after this, after Job's friends sit with him for these days as they're in this time of mourning, he opens into a pretty honest lament. Let me read you a couple pieces of it. Um, it goes for all of chapter three, but starts at the, the beginning. May the day of my birth perish and the night that said a boy is conceived, that day may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine on it. He's cursing the very day he was born. Later on, he says, For sighing has become my daily food. My groans pour out like water. What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. It's a pretty bold and honest lament at this point in his life. And at first, Job still praises God, but it doesn't last long. It goes on later for him in the book to, he actually gets pretty accusatory saying, God, why did you do this to me? Why is, why are you letting me do, go through this? Why did you punish me like this? Why are you hurting me like this? And, and all these different accusations he gives to God. Of course, as the reader, we know, like we saw in the video, that it wasn't God that was doing this to him, was it? It was the enemy, the opposed one, Right. As Tim Mackey in the video says, the, the Satan, right? And we often say Satan, right? This, this being that is doing this cursing and, and hurting him, it's not God. But Job accuses God in that way. And it's interesting because God never corrects him in that way necessarily. In fact, God receives that and allows him to share that anger and that angst with him. Job went through so much and he got some pretty lousy advice from his friends. I think they meant well. We can assume that at least. But at the end of the video, they said that this about Job. Job goes through all of this, and now Job is the kind of person who no matter what comes, good or bad, can trust God's wisdom. So a, a question I think the story of Job begs of us is this. Do we trust God's wisdom enough to trust God even in suffering? It's a, it's a big question, and I understand if it's hard to answer that with a yes right away, but do we trust God's wisdom enough to trust God even though we're in suffering? Here though, we see how we might trust God, what that might look like. For Job, trusting God looks like being honest with God, even though he's mad and sad and, and devastated. I don't know how many times I've read someone's caring bridge and they're sharing the things that are going on in their life, someone who's sick, someone who's ill, and they use the word devastated. We're devastated. This is how 
Job feels. He's devastated, but he's being completely honest with God, even, even saying to God, why did you do this to me? Why did you let this happen to me? Trusting God means that we are welcome to be honest with God, to bring that pain and that grief to God. It's lament. We've talked about this so much because I think it's a gift that God gives us to welcome us and our honest feelings. It's an interesting way to think of this, but lament is a form of trusting God because you're still coming to God and bringing to God these raw and real emotions that of course God already knows, but the action of bringing them to God is actually a form of trusting God. And that's what Job is doing here. Even though he's angry and upset, he doesn't turn away from God. The truth is, is that it's just not easy to trust God in the midst of pain and suffering. It's not. And God often doesn't explain it to us. Uh, we don't even usually see all of these reasons in hindsight. I mean, that's what we like to think. Oh, I can look back and I can say, this is why this happened. And every once in a while, there's maybe a little bit of meaning to it. But that's what we desire, right? If, this, if we're going to go through this, then I want to know why. When God finally responds to Job, he doesn't tell him what was going on. He doesn't even explain that kind of cosmic courtroom thing that's going on with Satan. He doesn't even explain that. Instead, this is Job's response, or God's response to Job in chapter 38. I just think this is so interesting. Um, you saw kind of the image, but let me, use, let me share the words with you that are used here as the Lord speaks for the first time responding to Job. He says, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man, and I will question you, and you shall answer me. He's just responding to him. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. He's talking to Job. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Of course, Job does not know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who shut up the seas behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness? when I fixed its limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you may come and no farther. Here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? Of course he hasn't. That it might take the earth by its edges and shake the wicked out of it? The earth takes shape like clay under a seal. Its features stand out like those of a garment. The wicked are denied their light and their upraised arm is broken. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the deepest darkness? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. What is the way to the abode of light and where does darkness reside? Can you take them to their places? Do you know the paths to their dwellings? Surely you know, for you were already born and you have lived so many years. God goes on there, but... I think that God is being sarcastic here with Job. Surely you know, Job, you've been alive for a long time. You've been around since the beginning of time. You know, of course not. But what God is trying to express to him here is this. I am God. The things that happen in this world are complex. Look at all that I have made. Look at all that I have control over. And you have control over so little as a human being. You don't understand all of these things that are going on, but I do. I'm God. I am that big. And he takes... Job on this journey of expressing this to him. And I get this. I think I'm with Job on this, okay? <laughs> when I am experiencing stuff that I'm going through, I want to come to God and say, you know, can't you just see God? God, look, here's how this needs to go. This is what's going to go well. If you could just fix these things or maybe like Job, I say, God, why are you doing this to me? 
and maybe it's not God at all. Or maybe on my better days, I'm like in a better place of accepting maybe whatever suffering I'm going through. But then I say things like, okay, God, I think I can handle this. I know you're with me. We're going to get through this pain and suffering. But what I'm really going to need here is a little explanation of why. All right. If you could just give me an explanation. This is going to go a lot better for me. And this is going to work out. But God often doesn't show me why. And God doesn't explain it to Job here either. Instead, he shows the vastness of who he is. Yet, think about this. He's so big, God is so huge, yet God is having this intimate conversation with this one person because he cares about him and he loves him and he's pausing to express this to him. And notice that God doesn't use one of the tropes or cliches that we so often hear, right? Everything happens for a reason or God won't give you more than you can handle. God doesn't, at least when I read through Job, he doesn't give any sort of trite response like that. But his friends, on the other hand, are not that helpful when they try to give clarity to the situation. They should have stuck with that whole ministry of presence thing and basically kept their mouth shut. They're sitting with him, they're crying with him, but then they feel the need to go down the everything happens for a reason road. And as they're going down that direction, they are not going in a good place. They end up coming up with basically the summary well, Job, you must have done something to deserve this. Clearly, you must have, I mean, they're kind of turning on him. Man, what did you do that God did this to you? Of course, we know that's not what happened. They say a lot of unhelpful things. And Job doesn't back down. He, he knows he didn't do anything to deserve such horrible suffering. And in the end, God has some words for them too. God says he's angry with these friends for saying things that weren't true about Job and weren't true about God. But you also see God expressing that God welcomed what Job had expressed to him. Even though it was an honest prayer, even though Job was accusing that maybe God had been the one, even though that perhaps it was some prayers that sounded a little bit more like swears, God welcomed those words from Job, but told the friends that was not right, that was not accurate to push him in that way. I think many of us have been those unhelpful friends at times. And we've had some of those unhelpful friends at some points in our lives. I went over to the house of one of my neighbors who I had heard, we, we got to know him pretty well, and I had heard that they were going through some pretty messy stuff. And I mean literally messy because the front yard had caved in and the sewer line had collapsed and the sewage had come into their house. This was just over these last couple of weeks. And the sewage is coming in the house and it's getting worse and worse and it's a weekend and so they can't find anyone to help them. And then they get some people to help them and then one thing after another goes wrong and the bill is racking up. And so I went over there to say, how are you doing? And just asked about how they were experiencing it. And uh, he says, well, let, let me just tell you, there goes my daughter's college fund. Like this thing had gotten expensive. And he was clearly really frustrated about this experience. And then he said something to me. He said, well, you're a pastor, right? Isn't the saying that God won't give you anything more than you can handle? <laughs> and years ago, I maybe would have been someone that would have said something like that. I'm going to be honest, okay? And I've been somebody who's said unhelpful things like Job's friends. But he said that to me. He said, isn't that saying God, God won't give you more than you can handle? And I said, uh, you know what? I do not think that, that that saying is accurate. I actually think that's a bad translation and a bad understanding of 1 Corinthians 10.13. <laughs> and I don't think he wanted me to get into it any further than that. But he had the smile on his face. And, you know, I told him that I, you know, I was so sorry he was going through that. And we talked through a few different things. And later I, I found out from my husband, he had, JD had gone with him to a twins game. And he told JD that he asked me that question as a test. No kidding. He asked me the question, you're a pastor. Is that saying, 
Isn't that the saying? And to see what I would say, okay? And he explained to JD, he said, I feel like religious people often say unhelpful things like that. And he kind of wanted to see what I would do. And he said that I passed the test, but I will be honest and say there's times that I wouldn't have. There's times that I haven't. So last week when we were talking about how we can ask God for wisdom, God's going to give it to us if we ask. And this area of coming alongside people who are going through suffering of any type is an area we need to ask for wisdom. It's so critical that we can be people who come alongside other people when they're suffering. I've noticed over this last year as I've looked at my own life and the, and the lives of the people around me that in some ways I think that this has been a time that's made a lot of us feel more others focused where we're thinking about what other people are going through. But for other people, I think this has been a time that's pushed us deeper into individualism and a sense of self-focus. And what I want to encourage us is to find a healthy balance in this. How can we make sure that we're looking for and getting the support that we need and asking for help, but at the same time being people who turn and say, how can I be a person of help to other people? How can I support other people? I reached out to just a few people who have gone through some suffering over these last few years, and I said to them, there are people in our community, and I said, share with me just a few things that were helpful and things that were not helpful when it came to people coming alongside you in the suffering that you were experiencing. And so here's some themes of what I heard. We'll start with what was not helpful. They said things like, asking me what I have done or not done yet to try to fix the situation. Not helpful to jump into fixing it. Uh, Oversharing about their own experience instead of listening. Jumping so quickly into the hope of Jesus without taking time to understand and validate the pain and the loss before you jump to hope. That came up a few times. Saying things that would often just feel like they were trying to fill the space instead of actually listening and then expressing something and and then it would be more hurtful than just saying something like, I'm sorry for your loss. Uh, People who I thought I was pretty close to and were close to me who just did nothing or didn't even say anything at all, really hard to deal with. Uh, People who tried to offer simplistic answers instead of acknowledging how complex and painful the situation was. And then this came up a lot. People, almost every person I asked, said that when someone said, let me know how I can help and left it open-ended like that, that that was really tough. In fact, here's what someone said. When somebody said, let me know if you need anything, this was not helpful because it's a generalized statement and it makes that person feel better, but it puts the onus on the person who's going through something. And they said, I know everybody, almost everybody says it, but that's actually one thing that so many people said wasn't helpful. But they said things like, here's some things that were helpful. Drop a handwritten note in the mail. Send a text, say, I'm going to the store. What can I grab for you? Can I mow your lawn? Can I walk your dog? Can I come over on Tuesday and take your kids to the park? Uh, This one friend said, last night someone from Mill City dropped off dinner for our family and they didn't have to cook a thing. They just grabbed everything we needed for grilling and we all happily ate brats for dinner. And she lightened the load so I didn't have to shop or cook or do dishes. Uh, Cards, encouragement, thoughtful things to say that I, I see you, I care about you, I know what you're going through. A lot of people mentioned when folks just dropped something off on their doorstep and didn't make it feel like they were obligated to spend time if that's not where they were at. People letting me know that they're praying for me. A lot of people said that. People who stopped actually and said, can I pray for you right now or pray for you on the phone? Once again, offering a few ways that they could help instead of just open-ended saying, how can I help? Texting, letting me know they're praying for me, thinking of me, listening and not lecturing. People said what they really, what really helped them when they were dealing with loss and, and chronic suffering was people remembering months later, keeping track of the anniversary of when someone passed away or checking in again, even though many people have forgotten that you've been going through something. One person said they just, 
they just appreciated that some friends told them that they were proud of them for how they had been going through all that they've been going through. Uh, one person sent this quote by a woman an author named Laura Story. She said, the power of presence goes a long way, right? That ministry of presence. She said, I joke sometimes about how when I was in the hospital with my husband who was sick, he was hooked up to all these machines in the ICU and they weren't sure whether he was going to make it or not. And the three most powerful words everyone, anyone ever said to me was, here's your latte. <laughs> it's that simple sometimes. The story of Job can teach us so much. In so many ways, we just scratched the surface today. But what I hope we can take with us is that the Holy Spirit can give us wisdom for how we can come alongside people who are suffering. And the Holy Spirit can give us courage to ask for help when we need it as well. I want to challenge you today to just come to God's Spirit, just to pray and to say, Jesus, who is one person in my life who's maybe been going through something, doesn't even have to be huge, and ask God to give you just one idea of something you can do without even having to ask him. One very tangible thing that you could also do is to let us know if you want to be on our Meals and More team we shared about a few weeks ago. We've got folks who bring meals to people who are just coming out of the hospital or just had a little baby. Uh, the more part is being able to serve in different ways. Uh, and then let us know if you're someone that needs the services of the Meals and More team. Please let us know. Once again, just email us, info at millcitychurch.com. And the most important thing besides how we can ask God for wisdom and how to come alongside others is to know that Jesus is with us in the midst of our suffering. Jesus is with us and came to this earth to experience a human life that experienced human suffering. It says that God is close to the brokenhearted. God wanted to prove that so much that Jesus came to come walk with the brokenhearted ones. And not only that, that Jesus went to the cross experiencing physical, brutal suffering, psychological, brutal suffering himself. What an amazing God to choose to take on the brokenness, to take on the pain, to become a human, to experience what he experienced so that Jesus can be in our life and can say to us, I know, I understand, and I'm with you. I think this is why Jesus wanted us to remember what he had done on the cross. Because it accomplished so much, right? Our forgiveness, it accomplished reconciliation with God, it accomplished the inauguration of the kingdom of God, but it also accomplished the reality that the God of the universe chose to experience suffering so that we know we could be understood in that way. And so Jesus wanted his disciples, his friends, to remember what had, he had done. So this night before he died, he's with these disciples, he's with these friends. They're eating, doing something they so often did. And he takes the bread and he says, this is my body that's given for you. He takes this cup and says, this is my blood that's been shed for you. Whenever you eat this, whenever you drink this, remember me. Remember what I have done, what he was about to do. Taking on the burden and the brokenness and of suffering and death on the cross and conquering it so that in the future there will be a day when all the wrong things will be made right. So as you take those communion elements at home, Let's do this in remembrance of a God who chose, who didn't have to, but chose to experience what we might experience as human beings so that we would know that it's that God that we can trust when we're going through suffering, even if it doesn't make any sense. Let me pray for you. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come to you as people who are so often confused as we don't know why things happen and we wish that we could know but we come to you and we say, you are the God of the universe. You are so huge, yet you care intimately about each one of our lives. And we thank you for that, God. We thank you for all that you accomplished on the cross. But that part of that was 
a reality of identifying with us and our suffering so that we can identify with you in your suffering and what you accomplished on the cross on our behalf. Jesus, we thank you for that promise to be with us no matter what. And we ask for your wisdom as we figure out how to continue to come alongside each other through the most amazing moments in life, the most devastating moments in life, and everything in between. It's in Jesus' name we pray. 